Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. For us, Jennifer's murder was like a 9-11 moment. 5 to 15, is that what Jennifer Levin's life was worth? Robert is a symbol of white male beauty, power, and money. He's very convincing. I mean, he could show you a pretty face and smile and, you know, act like he's very nice, but there's something deep inside of him that just is not normal. If a woman says that she likes making love with a man, she's immediately characterized as a slut. I think once the slut shaming, the victim shaming happened, I think it was an impossible uphill battle. Linda Fairstein was the head of the sex crimes unit in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. She basically created that office. She certainly gained some celebrity from this Chambers case. Part of being a public figure is admitting your mistakes. Every wrongful conviction is like a plane crash. And after there's a plane crash, we study the plane crash to try to stop other planes from crashing. Where did we go wrong here? How did this go off the rails? Welcome back to The Truth About True Crime. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. This season, we've been looking at a story that shocked New York City in the 80s, the killing of Jennifer Levin by Robert Chambers, as seen in the Sundance TV docuseries, The Preppy Murder, Death in Central Park. We began with the battle of storytelling at trial, then stepped into the perspectives of the teens involved on the night of Jennifer Levin's death, searching for Robert Chambers' motive. In this final episode, we're shifting perspective yet again, this time to the present day, where the individuals in this case have taken on symbolic significance in the cultural battles being waged in our schools, our offices, our Congress, and on Twitter. I'm talking about white male privilege, slut-shaming, and cancel culture. All this to say, in the last 33 years, this story has not stopped resonating. It never really occurred to me that this story was as big as it was nationally, but there'd still be an appetite for it 30 years later. That's Alex Cap, who was dating Robert Chambers in the weeks before the murder. She knows firsthand how this case has become a fetishized morality tale about privilege and victim blaming. A few years ago, there were all these reenactment shows on this. There's a scene where he's doing cocaine off of my stomach on his bed. 
Like she's Whoa. <laughs> my daughters are like, oh my God, did you do that? I was like, no. Jesus, no, that did not happen. God. But 30 years later, through the lens of cultural myth, the idea of Robert Chambers doing cocaine off Alex Capp's stomach is too symbolic for the reenactors to resist. What better image for wealth and privilege run amok? It's a little surreal when you're sitting with your teenage daughters watching a reenactment like that of, of yourself. Looking back on her past with Robert Chambers, as the death of Jennifer Levin in Central Park continues to crop up in the media, Cap has a highly personal cocktail of emotions. There was something kind of really soothing about the fact that I had these two amazing girls who aren't dating murderers. And like... But the story of Chambers and Levin, of the preppy killer, of the rough sex defense, has transcended the personal connections of someone like Cap. It's become a touchstone to help explain how we got to Brock Turner, the Stanford swimmer convicted of sexual assault, how we got to the confirmation hearing of Brett Kavanaugh. You see it everywhere, it still goes on today. Christine Blasey Ford. Look at the dignity of that woman and the courage that it took her to tell her story. Christine Blasey Ford and Chanel Miller have risen up to tell their stories. Jennifer Levin could not. And those with ulterior motives filled the vacuum. Supporters of Levin criticized Littman's portrayal of the victim as a wild sexual animal. She was a wholesome kid, and she was painted to be, you know, this kind of whore. Hurtful and horrible things. It was burying her over and over again. Many New Yorkers have complained that Chambers' defense amounts to another crime, an assault on the memory of Jennifer Levin. When we first heard that Jennifer made it known that she wanted to have sex with Robert, I didn't know what to think. I mean, you know, back then it was still a little squeamish. It wasn't just an attack on Jennifer, it was an attack on her lifestyle, on her personality, on her morals. It's this facet of the case that struck me hard in the chest when I first encountered it. Jennifer never got to see the attacks on her character, but I'd bet you anything her mom and my mom would be fast friends. My trial was in 2007, 20 years after Jennifer Levin, the victim, not the accused, was put on trial for her sexuality. According to Justin Brooks of The Innocence Project, this practice of weighing the value of the victim's life, her moral character, has been baked into the system for a long time. The system is set up to assess the value of that life, and it's mm. just not right at all. In the old days, a standard defense was to show the victim as being promiscuous. And if you show the victim to be promiscuous, the jury will believe that that victim now consented to sex with the defendant. Jessica Doyle, Jennifer Levin's friend, reacted strongly to this double standard. Women aren't really allowed to have a sexual identity. So if a woman says that she likes making love with a man, you know, she's immediately characterized as a slut. Right. You know, and in hindsight, now that I'm a 52-year-old woman, I'm like, pro-slut. If the situation were reversed, would we actually say 
this man, is he somehow responsible for his own death? Mm-hmm. We yeah. wouldn't say that. Mm-hmm. We would never think that. A lot of people said that I was some kind of sex-crazed, promiscuous person. And, um, and my response is, like, I'm not a dominatrix, but even if I were, it doesn't mean that I would murder somebody. So, like, you know, there are all these different layers of judgments that people have. Um, yeah, but the real judgment, Amanda, is that you're not allowed to have a sexual identity because you're a woman. Mm. That's the judgment. How dare you? Mm. You are supposed to receive sex, just like Christine Ford. That's what you do, and you suck it up. That entrenched double standard Doyle is referring to had rarely been expressed more egregiously than it was by Chambers' defense. And perhaps that is why it finally caused an equally strident response. If Robert Chambers became the symbol for white male privilege, Jennifer Levin became the icon of victim blaming. The expression blame the victim just exploded in this case. There were several very outraged, forward-thinking women in the community. One of them was named uh, Rose Jordan. We are afraid that if there's a small sentence here, that there will be men out there who will then kill women and say, oh God, she raped me, I had to defend myself, okay? She was so outraged that she got justice for Jennifer pins made up with Jennifer's name on it. There was a, a group, Justice for Jennifer, that used to protest outside the courtroom. They were actually selling t-shirts outside the courthouse. The little button, I wasn't allowed to wear it on TV, but I would carry it in my bag because I felt it had been so unfair for her. Even the guardian angels, who patrolled New York City in the 80s making citizens' arrests, got involved with the cause. Detective Mike Sheehan recalls, The guardian angels, they were all running around with their berets, chanting and yelling in the streets. We disliked intensely what he did to Jennifer Levin. We feel he murdered her a second time. How? By her, her murdering her reputation. American women had been fighting for equal rights for a century and had succeeded in many ways. But the combination of sexual freedom and reputation was still explosive territory. In an ideal system, a victim is a victim is a victim, and their characteristics should be irrelevant toward how we punish a criminal. As prosecutor Steve Sirocco put it to me. There's no such thing as a perfect victim. I mean, she's... Was she uh, sexually active? Yeah, that doesn't make her an imperfect victim. I mean, what are we talking about here? But was that true in the eyes of the jury? Sadly, I feel like victims have to be perfect. Reporter Rosanna Scotto. So I think that it's a sad statement to make, but I do feel like even if you're murdered, your reputation is put on trial. And... I think that's what happened with Jennifer Levin. But those who were horrified at how her reputation was tarnished didn't sit there quietly. They took action in Jennifer's name to combat victim blaming, not just in the media, but in the legislature. Roger Stavis, 
who represented Chambers, noted that the victims' rights movement really took off in the wake of this trial. The victim rights movement and the statutes that give victims a role and a say in criminal prosecutions came after this case. In particular, the rape shield laws were passed. I remember when the trial was over, I was contacted by Robert Abrams, our uh, attorney general, about a bill that he's working on that said, you can't bring up a crime victim's sexual past into court. It's called the Rape Shield Bill. Jennifer's mother, Ellen, advocated to include homicide victims in the bill. For 10 years, we managed to pass 13 pieces of legislation to protect victims of crime. As Justin Brooks put it. Since the rape shield laws came about, the idea of them was to say like, well, no, you can't just show their sexual background to show that they're promiscuous. It's just fundamentally not what we want to be doing. And it also stops victims from coming forward. That's why rape is one of the most unreported crimes. The Take Back the Night movement, which took up the Justice for Jennifer cause, exploded in the late 80s and early 90s with protests against rape culture and the idea that a woman's appearance or sexual desire can in any way justify sexual violence against her. And it's hard not to see Levin, the first high-profile face of victim blaming, as undergirding third-wave feminist movements like Riot Girl or The Slut Walk. And to the people who were in the trenches of the Chamber's murder trial, Witnessing the victim blaming firsthand, justice for Jennifer looks like an early flare of the later firestorm of the Me Too movement. It was a difficult time because women would definitely not be treated like that right now. Mm. But back then there was definitely freedom and license to do that. I think hopefully down the road that's gonna be easier for women, especially now with the Me Too movement. It would be very tough, I think, nowadays of this Me Too, you know, we're not going to blame women in a sexual encounter. You know, if they're killed, you know, blame the victim. It was, you know, something that maybe only could fly in the 80s. Even Roger Stavis, speaking from the perspective of Chambers' defense, admits that if people saw their tactics as victim-blaming back then... It would be uh, blame the victim by a factor of 100 today. Jennifer Levin's voice has been absent since the night Robert Chambers killed her. Even so, she has become a symbol in our culture. She represents the double standard for sexual freedom, the consequences of slut-shaming, the pain of blaming a victim for her own assault, her own murder. Would she have chosen to become a feminist symbol? I don't have a definitive answer for that. What I can say is that whatever Levin means to us on a symbolic level isn't synonymous with who she really was. The same is true of Robert Chambers. At first glance, Robert Chambers seems like a perfect study in privilege. Like whatever type of advantage you can imagine, he had it. And it all begins with the world he came from. That setting alone gave the story symbolic power, as reporters like McGee Hickey, 
who covered the story at the time, immediately picked up on. This is a tale of sex and violence among privileged teenagers on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. McGee Hickey, News 4, back to you, Sue. This sort of story was not supposed to happen to privileged children who go to private schools made out of mansions, who do not leave home without American Express. We were all very well off. What does your father do? Oh, I don't know. Uh, you know, five generations back, someone made some money. You know, if you have to ask, what does your father do, then you're not a preppy. You know, I mean, it's just a whole other world. Which is also to say, a world populated almost exclusively by white people. There'd be four or five murders a day in other parts of the city. And we would always say, oh, that's a drug murder. That one you don't pay attention to. But if something happens in Central Park to a white person in the 1980s, everyone pays attention to it. If Robert had been anything but a white Upper East Side boy, he would have had the book thrown at him. The world Robert Chambers ran in, populated by the upper crust, put him within reach of one of the greatest gifts of privilege, a strong defense. When superstar lawyer Jack Littman came on board as his attorney, lead detective Mike Sheehan reacted like this. Jack Littman, wow. Jack was one of the best around. He was a brilliant lawyer. Chambers was very lucky to have him indeed. Littman called himself zealous. If you're not zealous in representing your client, then you shouldn't be in a courtroom. You do everything you can within the bounds of law to represent your client. But from the perspective of Jennifer's mother and prosecutor Linda Fairstein, he was ruthless. He had absolutely no mercy for Jennifer. It was all his client, and his client was innocent. Littman was really a very dangerous adversary. I was afraid that Robert would get away with this crime. And that fear was justified. For by all accounts, Littman was mesmerizing. According to one juror. When Jack came on, everybody whispered, here comes the show. And that's what it was. Reporter Rosanna Scotto, who was in the courtroom day after day, describes him like this. Jack was a brilliant wordsmith. and. You would watch him because you didn't know how he was going to kind of twist and turn facts. There were times when I put on the air very pro-Jennifer Levin stories, and I would get a phone call from Jack Littman basically screaming at me saying, how could you not include this or that or the other thing? And I said, what's the big deal? The jury is not supposed to be watching TV. He said, the jury watches TV. And what they saw on TV and on newsstands throughout the city was a face that looked like the opposite of a killer. As reporter Rosanna Scotto says, When we saw the young person who was accused of killing her, everybody in the newsroom stopped in their tracks because here was a young man who looked like the Hollywood Adonis. A Kennedy-esque looking young man accused of murder. Detective Wally Zines called him a chick magnet. He looked like the all-American college student, GQ look then. He was what every parent wanted their son to look like. But how much of an advantage is beauty when you're accused of murder? In my own trial, being seen as pretty worked against me. But according to the research, 
That tends to be true when the criminal accusation involves seduction or swindling, where charm and beauty are seen as aids in accomplishing the crime. That's according to researcher Justin Gunnell, who has studied the effect of attractiveness on criminal trials. It's a different story when the crime isn't related to the beauty of the accused, but the accused just happens to be beautiful. There was a number of studies that came out in the 70s and 80s that looked at whether or not more attractive defendants received leniency from jurors on that fact alone. And all of them found uh, kind of this general trend that you know the more attractive a defendant is, uh, that can result in either a, a guilt determination that is more favorable or even a sentencing determination that's more favorable. Another factor that studies have proven to affect guilt and sentencing outcomes at trial is religion. Robert Chambers wasn't just the handsome, white, prep school kid who'd never been arrested before. He was an altar boy, literally. Levin's mother, Ellen, recalls. Robert Chambers, he had his supporters on one side of the courtroom, and that included the clergy. The church was there to support him. This was all part of Jack Lemon's orchestration. To the public, it looked like he was a young, clean, good Catholic boy. The Archbishop of Newark, Theodore McCarrick, was a powerful political figure in New York City who would go on to become a cardinal. The McCarrick letter was presented by Jack Lippmann as part of the bail application to get Robert out of jail. And what it did, in fact, was throw all the weight of the Catholic Church behind Robert. Prosecutor Linda Fairstein was baffled at first, until she learned that McCarrick was Chambers' godfather. Ted McCarrick showed up in full garb as a Monsignor in the front row with Mrs. Chambers, vouching for Robert Chambers. There were certain people in the church who gave their own personal money. There was one Monsignor who put up his entire life savings for bail for Robert Chambers. In fact, when he got out on bail, he stayed with one of the monasteries in New York. All of this was supposed to cloak Rob in the holiness of the Catholic Church. This was a good boy from a religious family. Look, he's living with the priests. They're not afraid of him. Nobody has to be. Ironically, Years later, Cardinal McCarrick would be defrocked after credible allegations emerged of sexual misconduct with seminarians. But at the time, association with the church could only help the defense. With Robert Chambers out on bail, living in a rectory and out on the streets, Littman had everything he needed to work the PR magic that would forever transform Robert Chambers into a symbol of white male privilege. Detective Mike Sheehan called Littman. A fantastic manipulator, and he knew how to use the press. Jack Littman's job was to portray Robert Chambers in the most positive light. But many felt that he took his show too far, especially when he arranged a New York Magazine cover story written by Michael Stone. I'd written about uh, the kids that were involved in Robert's scene. So they knew me and trusted me. I spoke to Jack regularly after I started the story. He wanted to paint a picture of Chambers that was attractive as possible. 
Stone titled the piece East Side Story, a whimsical reference to West Side Story, a musical retelling of Romeo and Juliet. In it, Stone gave ample space to Littman's talking points. But perhaps the most striking thing about the article wasn't even what Stone wrote. It was Robert Chambers striking a confident pose on the cover. The comment everywhere was that Robert looked like a male model. Movie star handsome, beautifully coiffed, well-dressed. You couldn't see him as a cold-blooded killer. It was a full-page picture of Robert. It was like a headshot with a red tie and a blue blazer, mm-hmm. looking handsome. And then it was like a postage-sized stamp picture of Jennifer, and it just became about him. Mm. And the whole idea of a girl being murdered almost became like a footnote. That's Peter Davis, Jennifer's close friend. And if he was upset by the magazine cover, Alex Cap was enraged. They styled him. They styled him for a cover of a magazine. And he murdered somebody. And he was a sociopath and a liar. And I just, oh my gosh, I'm so mad. Of course, I read the article cover to cover 15 times. But I just couldn't believe it. And it was a devastating blow to Jennifer Levin's mother. I was at an airport and I saw it on the newsstand. And I completely freaked out. It's exactly the image Jack Whitman wanted everybody to see. And I hate to say it, I think he did a brilliant job. And I hated him as much as I hated Chambers for it. Even Roger Stavis felt uncomfortable following Littman's lead on this. I just came into work one day and there was a camera crew in our office. Was this Jack Littman's idea? Yes, and I didn't think that it was appropriate. Hmm, why not? I thought it glamorized my client. It certainly did. The defense cloaked Chambers in the trappings of a handsome, misunderstood, white altar boy. And many people flocked to his side. But just as many people relished the opportunity to unmask a rich and beautiful monster. In an interview Chambers did with 48 Hours in 2003, after serving his full 15-year sentence for the death of Jennifer Levin, correspondent Troy Roberts asked him, Rob, how could you be so dumb? (laughs) That seems to be a theme that runs through many things that I do. It is. He has made a lot of bad decisions, even while in prison. He could have been out in five years on good behavior, Instead, I think he broke every rule that there was. So he served his full 15 years. When Chambers was released on Valentine's Day of 2003, he expressed remorse for his actions. But for the Levins and the broader public, his half-apology and his 15 years in prison wasn't enough. Robert Chambers had walked free, but with a target on his back. Within a year and a half of his release from prison, after promising to live simply and make good, he was arrested for driving with a suspended license. The cops then found trace amounts of crack cocaine in a tinfoil wrapper and slapped him with drug charges. He pled guilty and spent 100 days in jail. The tabloids eagerly exploited this news, 
presenting Chambers in the worst possible light. Killer crackhead Chambers charged. One way of looking at this is that Chambers had proved a sociopath and criminal through and through. Another way of looking at it is that society was willing to offer Chambers only the narrowest road to redemption without his first accepting full responsibility for his crime against Levin. Either way, it seems like his return to prison was almost inevitable, especially with the NYPD looking out for any opportunity they could to put him back behind bars. There was a rumor going around that one of the teams in my building was investigating Robert Chambers. Eventually, that case landed in our team. That's Detective Andres Mahecha with the NYPD. The actual complaint came from one of the residents of the building. The people that were coming in and out looked like they were crack users or possibly heroin users. The police soon learned that Chambers was indeed selling cocaine. Another bad decision. And Mahecha went undercover. When I initially went into the apartment, I went in there with the role that I was looking for a new connection in the area. And I was looking to pay top dollar for if it was good quality of cocaine. And he started calling his sources and then eventually I started making the buys directly from him. Can I ask what the feeling was within the NYPD knowing that you guys had an opportunity to bust Chambers again? Oh, yeah. So so basically, it was a big thing. Not just the NYPD, you know, wanted to get him again, but also the prosecution, they really wanted to get him, you know, once again. I, I don't think that people were feeling that he got where he deserved for killing Jennifer. I didn't think 15 years was enough. So I felt like we really need to get this guy again. And if that's the case, we need to get him good. So we went hard and I decided that we needed to get really good evidence. He wasn't just your your guy selling a couple of nickel bags, you know? Because I was in there with thousands of dollars. Uh, you know, I wasn't just buying a couple of bags. He had no problem getting ounces of cocaine which meant that Chambers was a potential conduit to nab a bigger fish. We managed to identify some of the other people who were uh, bringing the product in. Mm-hmm. But we wanted to concentrate on him specifically and just and, and do the case against him. It's startling to me that the NYPD would pass up an opportunity to take down a drug supplier in favor of payback against a smaller fish for a previous crime. By the time Detective Mahecha arrested him, Chambers was facing potentially the rest of his life in prison for numerous drug trafficking charges. Again, the tabloids pounced. It's back to pen, preppy. Well, Chambers went back to prison. He got 19 years, which is longer than he served for murdering my daughter. Robert Chambers has come to be a symbol of privilege. But in looking deeper at his life and how it progressed, he seems to me like a kid who couldn't or wouldn't live up to the lofty expectations of his mother, who never really fit in amongst his wealthy classmates, 
a kid who felt indifferent about lying to them and stealing from them, and who crossed worse and worse lines as he fell deeper into drugs. From this distance, looking at the dark saga of his life, he looks to me like the other tragic figures I shared cells with in prison, a dissolute drug addict who ruined his own life by taking another's, and who could never escape a media that reveled in his humiliation, and a justice system committed to his downfall. Meanwhile, Chambers and Levin weren't the only ones who found themselves transformed into symbols not of their own making. Prosecutor Linda Fairstein also found outsized fame and scrutiny through this case and others. Her time in the spotlight as the head of the Manhattan Sex Crimes Unit, and in particular while prosecuting Robert Chambers, turned Fairstein into one of the most famous prosecutors in the country and a prominent face of the victims' rights movement. This case has become a part of your legacy, and I think a lot of people think of you as a champion of victims. And I was wondering, how does it feel to be celebrated for that? You know, it's interesting. That's a big word, and I'd never thought to use it, celebrated for it. I never drove to the point of being a victim's advocate. I mean, it was a role I was put in that I developed a great passion for. It was the right thing for me. And we were able to fight at a time when these issues were not in the forefront of legal issues at the time. I mean, I did the work because I liked it, but if you'd ever told me in 1972 that we would be cheered and congratulated for doing the work that became my career, I would have laughed at you and said, not possible. (laughs) But whether she anticipated it or not, that work made her an icon. She went on to write a series of best-selling crime novels and received many awards, including the Glamour Magazine Women of the Year Award, the Nero Wolf Award for Excellence in Crime Writing, and the New York Women's Agenda Lifetime Achievement Award. Is it any wonder she became seen as this abstracted figure, the victim's champion? But not everyone thinks prosecutors should take on the role of the victim's champion. Technically, Linda Fairstein never represented Jennifer Levin. She represented the state. Roger Stavis, who represented Chambers, sees this as a conflict of interest. I think that that is problematic. A prosecutor represents the government. I, on the other hand, as a criminal defense attorney, I have a flesh and blood client. The prosecutor does not, no matter how much they think they represent the victim, they don't represent the victim. They represent Mm -hmm. in the state's court system here in New York, they represent the people of the state of New York, and they represent justice. What a victim wants might not be justice. As representatives of justice and of the people, prosecutors have a duty to address the wrongs done to victims. But they also have a duty to the accused, which is to refrain from prosecuting when the evidence is weak, to dispassionately argue a case according to the letter of the law, and to acknowledge error and rectify their mistakes. 
It may sound like quibbling over semantics here, but this two-way duty is important. In another case just a few years after Jennifer Levin was killed, another young woman, Trisha Maley, was raped and left for dead in Central Park. Five Black and Latino teenagers from Harlem were coerced into falsely confessing to the crime, and they each spent four to 13 years in prison before the actual rapist came forward, and their convictions were overturned. New York City eventually settled a lawsuit with the Central Park Five for $41 million, and they've since become important and prominent voices for criminal justice reform. They're also friends of mine, which is why I have a personal stake in the fact that all of this happened on Linda Fairstein's watch. While Linda Fairstein was not the prosecutor in this case, she was head of the sex crimes unit, the department that oversaw the case against the five. None of it seemed to impact Linda Fairstein until the release of the Netflix series, When They See Us, which positioned Fairstein as the central villain in the wrongful convictions of the Central Park Five. Here's Jennifer's friend, Peter Davis. I mean, she basically, as they say, got canceled mm-hmm. um, and had everything taken away from her. And it's funny, when I saw it, when they see us, it made me think of Jennifer's case. Mm-hmm. And what happened to her kind of erased any good she had done. Mm-hmm. You know, she had every award taken away and book deals tossed out. The hashtag cancel Linda Fairstein began trending, along with calls to boycott her books and remove her from board positions. Glamour magazine effectively rescinded its Woman of the Year award. Her publisher parted ways with her, and Fairstein resigned from several organizations. In the wake of this Netflix series, Fairstein has transformed symbolically from the victim's champion to the face of prosecutorial misconduct. It's the first time I'm aware of that a prominent prosecutor has suffered any social consequences, let alone severe ones, for her role in a wrongful conviction. But does she deserve this? Her colleagues, like Steve Sirocco, don't think so. Yes, things did turn out wrong. The district attorneys may have been too close with the detectives, but there was no corruption on the part of Linda Fairstein or Liz Letter or any of the cops involved to uh, get this to a conviction. Absolutely not. In other words, were they wrongly convicted? Yes. Did Fairstein's office intend to wrongly convict them? No. I'm sympathetic to this distinction, the idea that people make mistakes and do things without realizing the full implications and consequences of their actions. But Fairstein continues to defend the actions of her office and points to other assaults the five were accused of. It's hard for me not to see this as anything but another form of victim blaming. The five didn't walk into police custody intending to confess to crimes they didn't commit. Something went wrong in those interrogation rooms, and it wasn't the fault of the five young boys. That doesn't necessarily mean it was an act of malice on the part of Fairstein's office, 
but it does call out for an explanation and remediation. I was wondering if you might be open to talking about the criticism that you've faced recently. I really am not ready to talk about it yet. The facts are not the facts portrayed in the film. The film is fictional. Um, and someday I'll be ready to talk about the lies that have been told, but not yet. But the inaccuracies of the film are beside the point. The victimization of the Central Park Five is not fiction, and Fairstein has yet to acknowledge that. I'm not surprised her that human nature is for her to defend the conviction and defend herself, but some of the truly enlightened prosecutors I've come across in my career have taken responsibilities for their role in wrongful convictions, but that's more the exception than the rule. Part of the reason why may be because society isn't all that forgiving, and there's often little incentive for people to genuinely admit fault. This is the central problem with cancel culture. It turns people into symbols overnight, rejects their humanity and their complexity, and traps them there, allowing for no road to redemption. I believe that most prosecutors, most police, most everybody gets up every morning and tries to do the best they can in their jobs. And I just fundamentally believe that life's a bell curve, that there's this small portion of people who are absolutely terrible at what they do and corrupt. And there's just also this small portion of people who are unbelievably great at what they do. And most of us are just stumbling along, good to okay, doing the best we can. The question is, does the good work you do get canceled out by the bad? Linda was a terrific prosecutor, and she really did everything that she could to be an advocate for Jennifer Levin. She has come under scrutiny for our handling of the Central Park Five, and I think that whatever happened in that case should not cloud what a terrific prosecutor she was in this preppy murder. I have a positive opinion of Linda Fairstein. She's wrong about this, but she's done a lot of very good work, and uh, I don't think that you should judge her just by virtue of her mistake. There's always two sides to a story. Did you ever eat a one-sided pancake? No. To call for Linda Fairstein's immediate and utter cancellation is to write off all the work she has done for victims of sexual violence. It's to treat her as a symbol, not a person. We do see things often as black or white. There's no in-between, and the reality is everything is in-between. The impulse to collapse people into symbols is powerful, whether we're talking about Linda Fairstein or Robert Chambers. We can and should condemn what he did, but that doesn't mean we should collapse him into a symbol of power, privilege, or evil, a monster defined completely by the worst thing he's ever done. We'd like to believe that people can be rehabilitated, and I guess that's my optimistic side in all of this. But um, who knows whether Robert Chambers, when he comes out, will be able to stay out of a New York prison for the remainder of his life. Whether he does or not, 
we shouldn't let our desire to see him as a symbol eclipse his humanity. And by the same token, we should strive to remember that however potent Jennifer Levin might be for us as a cultural touchstone for the dignity of victims, she was also just a girl who never asked to be a victim, who never asked for the spotlight. A young woman who is grieved and loved and missed every day by her family and friends. Thank you for joining us for season five. Be sure to check out the special bonus episode of The Truth About True Crime, an interview with Lorena Gallo, formerly Bobbitt, live in Washington, D.C. at the Death Becomes Us True Crime Festival. This podcast is written and produced by me, Amanda Knox, and my partner, Christopher Robinson, and directed, edited, and sound designed by Galen Mullins. It is executive produced by Malka Media, Sundance TV, and AMC Digital Studios. To dig deeper, check out the Sundance TV docuseries, The Preppy Murder, Death in Central Park, at SundanceTV.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.